There's a building in Canton, Ohio that um, contains the record of some of our national heroes. This, uh, this place, this, uh, these heroes are not really political. They're not our political leaders or our military heroes. And they're not the great philosophers who have ever lived. This is the National Football League Hall of Fame. And I'm told that you can play back recordings in this um, Hall of Fame and hear the sounds of the great games of the past. And the announcers that were there will play, give you play-by-play -play and call such names as Jim Thorpe and Red Grange and Dope Walker and Johnny Unitas and Gail Sayers and Raymond Berry and the list goes on and on. I want to visit that place someday, hopefully. There is another hall of fame that God has provided. As a matter of fact, His eyes are always, the scripture says, are always searching to find those who will trust Him for the impossible. It is face hall of fame. It is not dependent, this Hall of Fame is not dependent upon great athletic ability. It's not just for those who have great skills in athletics. It's open to everyone. You can enter it at any age. It's Face Hall of Fame. You might recognize the names of some of the people who have made this Hall of Fame. Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Noah and Jacob and Samson. And we have observed before in a sermon past that these are just ordinary people. They're people who have the same temptations and the same struggles and the same needs that you and I have. They're not super saints. They're not perfect but imperfect. There are no halos around their heads. Abraham had a problem with, with honesty. Jacob was a deceiver. Noah had a drinking problem. Rahab was a prostitute. But they're just people who at a point of time were willing and able, had the ability to trust God to do the impossible at that point in time. So that they're really examples and not exceptions. And your name could be inserted into this hall of fame just just as easily today. As a matter of fact, he begins chapter 12 with the word therefore, and we know that he does that in order to link up with what has been said in chapter 11, chapter 12. It is as though he were saying, I have said all of this in chapter 11 so that you might be just like the people who are written, who are recorded there. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is a three-part question we need to answer right at the beginning this morning. The first, this is the question. Who are these witnesses, where are they, and what are we about today? 
Who are they? Well, I think it is obvious that he answered the, that question in chapter 11. There are these people who really did trust God. There are people who are really people of faith, and they have died, and in glory they are watching us as we run the race. Are they really watching us? Are they really cognizant of what we are doing now? Are they really watching? There are some who say yes. And they point to that uh, King James word that we are familiar with when we come to this passage, seeing we are encompassed about. And the word means to gather around as to gaze and look. It is as though these Old Testament saints are somewhere peering over heaven's brink and watching us. What a magnificent thought. They gather around, they stoop down to watch and cheer. Texas Christian University has not always been a sorry football team. In the mid-50s, they were the powerhouse of the Southwest Conference, and they always played their arch-rival Southern Methodists on the last game of the season. In the mid-50s, they were playing Southern Methodists for the conference championship, and Southern Methodists was slightly favored, had a little bit better team. But Texas Christian made a tremendous tactical move. They invited all of the greats that had ever played for, for TCU back for that game. All of the greats. Sammy Ball was there and others. And they had them lined up on the football field, had a seat for each one of them, a chair for each one of them, from one end of the football field to the other. And there in the inspiration of their presence, Texas Christian mowed them down. Lou Little, the famous football coach, tells this true story. A, a song was written about it uh, not too long ago, as a matter of fact. He told about the boy who played for him, who was on his team, who was kind of a walk-on, got a scholarship, but was never really good enough to make the team. He was just kind of a scrub. But he said he was the leader of the team. Everybody liked him. He was just Mr. Personality, and everybody really enjoyed him. And he said, I greatly admired this young fellow. He was an unusual guy. He said when his father would come to visit uh, the campus, he would just take him arm in arm all over the campus, and they would talk, and they had such a good relationship. On the week of the big game, this boy's father died, and he went home to bury his father and to be with his mother. On the eve of the big game to decide the championship, the boy came into the, to the coach's office and said, I want to play tomorrow. Well, what would you tell a young guy like senior year, inspiration of the team, but the game is on the line that will determine the championship? He told him this. He said, really? I, I shouldn't risk the, the game. I, I, I admire you. I love you. We respect you. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you play four minutes, and then I'll take you out. He put him in for four minutes but he didn't take him out. He played 60 minutes of inspired football and he made the play that won the game. And in the exuberant locker room, the coach sought him out. He was surrounded by fans and reporters. He made his way up to him and said, you are not really capable of doing that. You don't really have that kind of ability. How did you do it? And he said, you know my father, 
There was something about my father that nobody really knew here on the campus. He was a proud man. He didn't want them to know it. My father was totally blind, and today was the first time he'd ever seen me play. Seeing we're encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses who are stooping down to watch and cheer, at least in a spiritual sense, their testimony surrounds us. Let us run with patience the race that's set before us. Now, what are we about? Well, the Scripture says that we're engaged in the race that's set before us, a race that began at the cradle and ends at the grave. And the word there in the text for race is agonos, and it comes from the word where we get our word agony. That is to say that you and I are engaged in the struggle of life that can best be described as agony. And therefore we must learn to run this race by depending upon the Lord, by looking to Him. We're not trained to trust we're trained to depend upon those inner resources and strengths. We're told you can do it. Just reach down deep inside of you and find that inner strength and you can do it. That good old humanistic philosophy that is described in the poem that we memorized when we were children, Invictus, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole. I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul, for it matters not how straight the gate or charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But I'm here to tell you, you're not. I'm here to declare to you that you don't have it in you to run the race. Self-help and self-motivation will just not get it done. You the crowd of witnesses gathers around and this is what they cheer. Look up to Him. Look up to Jesus. That leads us to a second question from the text. It's this question. How do you prepare for this kind of thing? How do you prepare for the race? I mean, if life is an, is an agony, and for some it is, if it is a race that can best be described as Hagonos, agony, how do you prepare for that? Well, you do it in a negative sense from the text in two ways. There are some things that you have to lay aside. Did you notice in the text it said, let us also lay aside as though that were the secret of success for these Old Testament saints. The word also implying that they won the race by having laid aside certain things. And he gives two. He says every encumbrance. The word means mass or bulk. It means the superfluous or unnecessary. See the batter in the, in the batters uh, in the, in the on-deck circle. He's got uh, three bats in his hand, and he's swinging those three bats as he loosens up. I can remember my father was always cutting up, and he, we were playing a softball game, and he, he went to the plate with three bats. <laughs> I thought, you idiot. You know, I, I mean, there's time and place for everything. He went up and said, you don't take three bats into the batter's box. He, he, he's got the three bats in his hand, and he's loosening up, and he 
or he gets that lead donut that they use and they drop it down the bat and they get that and they swing it until they loosen up. But when he steps into the batter's box, he lays aside the others and he carries one in. For everything else is superfluous. Everything else is unnecessary. It's a lead weight. It's an encumbrance. And so these Olympians, as they prepared for the race, they would all come together at a special place and they lived in difficult surroundings. And they trained in difficult surroundings. They put weights on their legs and wrists and waist. And they would run with these weights. And they'd wear these long togas or togas around that come around their legs down so that they could hardly move their legs as they ran and they trained for months. And on the day of the race, for the first time, they were allowed to take these weights off and they stripped down till they were almost naked to run. They laid aside the encumbrance. Now you have to make out your own list. I've got my own that I have to work off. Those things in your life which hinder. Now you can run the race with weights, but you'll never win. I mean, you can run the marathon weighing 300 pounds, but you'll not win. And you can live the Christian life with all this garbage that bows you down, all these weights that are encumbrances. You can, you can run, live the Christian life with all these things that are not really necessary, but you can't have victory doing it. You will not be victorious in the Christian life until you find those things that are just bearing you down and defeating you and you lay them aside and it's an act of the will. Then he said, we have to lay aside the sin. Notice it's the sin that so easily entangles us. Now there have been a lot of people who've tried to isolate that sin and find out what it is. Oh, they say, some say it's that besetting sin that just keeps popping up or cropping up that bothers people. Like for some it might be gossip. For some it might be uh, a violent temper. For others it might be immorality. It's that sin that just keeps raising its head. You're kind of Achilles heel, so to speak. But, but that's not it. That's not what he's talking about. That would be a sin. It's the sin. And in the context, it refers to the sin of unbelief. The sin that so easily entangles us is the sin of failing to believe in God. It's the, it's the sin of doubt. It's the failure to trust Him. That's what defeats us and our church. For we've already noted in chapter 11 verse 6 that faith is believing that God is and that He rewards those who seek Him well, doubt is believing that God isn't and that it doesn't do any good to seek Him when the need arises. Faith is believing God in everything. Faith is seeing God at work in everything. Faith is the ability to believe that God is continuously at work in my life. It's seeing God's hand in everything. It's finding Him in the shadows. It's believing that all things work together for good to them that love God. And I talked on the telephone just about 30 minutes ago with one of our members who's way off from here, who is, who is desperately ill. And she shared with me her faith in God and said, if there is some way that my illness can testify of God's goodness, then I'll consider it all worthwhile. 
That's seeing, that's faith, that's seeing God in everything. For life always has its detours and disappointments. I know of no one whose life has turned out like she or he planned it, uh, wanted it. Well, there might be smooth sailing for a while, but suddenly we're detoured down some rough road to God knows where. I didn't get into the school I wanted. I lost the job I thought secure. I was hurt by somebody I loved or I thought loved me. I had to lay aside my lifetime dream. You've all been there. You've all been down that road. And faith is believing that even God is at work. God is even at work in all of that. That nothing happens to me by chance. I like Francais' statement about that. He said, chance is the pseudonym God uses when he doesn't want to sign his name. God is at work in everything. There's one last question. It's this question, how do you run this race? How do you live this life? How do you be victorious? How do you win? You've laid aside the encumbrance and the sin of unbelief, and how do you run victoriously? Three ways. You run with endurance. The word is waiting patience. In fact, it is patience in the King James. Waiting patience. It means just to keep on going. Patience is a word that is often associated with athletic events. John Wooden, the successful coach, ex-coach of the UCLA, UCLA Bruins, has a, has a book called, uh, you know, Call Me Coach. In this book, he has the pyramids of success. One of the bricks in the pyramid of success is patience. The Dallas Cowboys were two touchdowns behind at the halftime, and I listened to the color commentator talk about the situation. This is what he said. What the Cowboys have to remember is just to be patient. Don't lose their poise. Stay by the game plan. Be patient. Don't go for it. Go for all the points at one time. When a team gets behind, it has a tendency to panic and go for broke and accelerate and lift the level of, of, of chance. You know what he's saying? He's saying this is how to live the life. Here's, here's, this is how to run the race. Just waiting on God. Just trusting the Lord. Just being patient. Just being willing to say, Lord, I'm willing to wait and trust and believe. I'll wait patiently for you to work. You're to run with compliance. He says, let us run the race that's, that is set before us. Did you catch that? In other words, we don't have a privilege of crawling over the fence the day before the race and, and making the track like we want it to be, arranging the race like we want it. We run the race that's set before us. Nor do we have the privilege of arranging life like we want it to be. I'm so much smarter than God. I mean, if I was in heaven, I'd arrange my life so differently. That's what I think. If, if I were in control, I'd arrange the events of my life so much different, more different than they are. Uh, not, not really. I just run, I'm just to run the race that's set before me. I don't have the privilege of arranging the events of my day like I think they ought to be. God knows best. 
and I'm to run with concentration. He said, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. You, you ever use that word fixing? I'm fixing to do this. Uh, my, I got a friend out in West Texas that kids me all the time for saying that. I'm fixing to go to town. Well, what, is that? what does that mean, fixing? It means that I'm, I'm, I'm zeroing in on this one thing. When you fix your eyes upon Jesus in this text, it means that you focus on Him. You look away from that which distracts and you zero in on Him. You focus on Jesus. Where's your focus this morning? And Luke tells us about it. The disciples were in the little boat and the wind came up and the waves. And Jesus came walking to them on the water and they thought him a phantom, a ghost. You, where were their eyes when he was walking across the water? They were on him. I dare you to see what you think is a ghost and look away from it. <laughs> their eyes were on him walking on the water and Simon said Lord if it be thou bid me and I'll come to you and he said come and he crawled out of the boat and he started walk, walking on the water and the scripture said but when he saw the wind have you ever seen the wind I, I've never seen it but when he saw the wind you know what that means when he was distracted by everything around him when he saw the turbulence around him he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank you focus on him you concentrate on him you zero in on him you say how do you do that preacher well when I feel myself beginning to beginning to, to, to waver, this is what I say. Now look, turn to Jesus. Look to Him. Think that positive thought. Know that God is in control. Don't allow that, that negative thought to enter. Lord, I want you to be in control. Chuck Swindoll tells about a time of great depression in his life and he got this letter, got this picture from an artist in his church. On one side of the, of, the, of the page, there was this monk, this little monk, you know, with the big toes and the long robe. On the other side of the page was this statement that caused him to know that the monk was Martin Luther. Martin Luther's song, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Listen to this. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. What a word. Pretty, pretty discouraging, isn't it? But notice what he said. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the God, the, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He, Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. And so I look to Him and I say, Lord, You must win this race in my life. And I understand that, are you listening? I understand that Jesus deals more in direction than he does 
in definition. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time explaining why. He just says, follow me. You know, I think I could be a pretty good golfer if I could keep my head down and my eye on the ball. I, I, I just know I would. My problem is, and when I take that gigantic cut, I'm always looking up to see where the ball goes before I hit it. Is that, you ever had that problem if you ever played golf? I think if I could just keep my eye on the ball a little longer, I'd be great. You know, that's true in the Christian life. We're always straining to see the consequences of our actions before the action itself. If I make this decision, what will happen? If I do this, where will it lead? We're always straining to see the result before the, the action itself. And so he says, consider him. That means turn it over in your mind. Turn over in your mind over and over again what God has done in Christ Jesus. And when you focus on Him, He gives you a little glimpse of eternity so that time is lost. Um, I was watching the World Series and they came on with this uh, ad for baseball. It says, baseball fever, catch it. It lasts forever. Uh, have you ever been to a ball game and you went in and it was such a great game that you were there for three hours and all you thought about was what was happening right before you? I mean, you forgot for three hours the things that happened before you went in and, and you forgot about the things that might happen after you leave and for three hours all you thought about was right before you. That's what he's talking about. He said, you get your eyes focused on Jesus. You look away from those things which distract you and you'll forget about what happened to you and what might happen to you. Listen that I'm through. Frederick Buchner tells about seeing the play, the, the movie, La Dolce Vita, in an Italian theater when he was a young man. He said the, the movie opened with a helicopter carrying a large veiled statue of Jesus in a harness hanging down out of the helicopter. And this helicopter was over this little village in Italy, first over the playground, then over the market square, and that large statue of Jesus was just swinging back and forth from that hanging from that helicopter. And he said, then the veil came off. And the camera zoomed in. And he said, just for a second, for a minute, the whole screen was filled with the bearded visage of Jesus. And he said, everything got deathly silent, just like this room right now. He said, nobody talked. Nobody ate popcorn. They just stared into the face of Jesus. And Buchner said, listen. He said, just for a moment, they saw the face they had never seen before. The face that belonged to them. 
or for a moment they saw the face, the face they had never seen before, the face to whom they belonged. This, he said, is what Christianity is about. For a moment, it's looking in to the face and being still. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses who peer from heaven now and who cheer the race. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily besets us and let us run patiently, obediently, faithfully the race that's set before us with our focus upon Him who died and rose again. This is our prayer in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now here this morning, would you look this way? We have three invitations. The first invitation this morning is for you to place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Now the story of this Bible is that Jesus came and died for your sin. And He rose again triumphantly from the grave to present Himself to God as a sufficient sacrifice. We ask you this morning to place your faith for salvation in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's not a matter of have, have you joined the church or have you been baptized. Have you really trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? We'll ask you to come this morning in simple faith to say, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. I come repenting of my sin. I want to accept Him into my life. The second invitation is for those of you who need to place your life in Christian fellowship in a church. God always has raised up a people at a location. If you're married, you have an address where you live that marriage out. And this fellowship opens its arms to you and to love you. Would you come to say, I believe God is leading me to place my life in First Baptist Church. The third invitation is for you this morning who are wavering in doubt and disbelief and rebellion and lack of faith. Just to make that step of faith to say, I want to rededicate myself to this. I want to begin to follow Jesus in faith-like walking. I want to rededicate myself. I know Christ, I've been saved, but I need a fresh touch from the Lord. We want you to come because God wants you to come and Christ died for you to come. So we'll ask you to while we stand in our choir sings. Would you do it now?